This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have professor, assistant professor Joseph Brown. He's a professor at University of Massachusetts, Boston, and we are discussing his book, Force of Words, The Logic of Terrorist Threats. So when I went through this book, I found it rather provocative. It's, it's this both theory building and theory challenge, but also it's paired with this, this in-depth quantitative study of threats. How do terrorist groups make threats? Why do they make threats? And when they are successful? So this is definitely... If you're a listener of the Loopcast and you do work on terrorism as an analyst or as a academic researcher, this is definitely a book that you want to read. We will have a link to the book when we publish the show. But for today, please welcome my guest, Dr. Joseph Brown. How's it going? It's going well, Sina. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. I want to start off with a very basic question, and it's a question that you attend to very well in the book, which is considering and defining what a terrorist threat is because i think within the literature itself there is sort of the idea of a threat is ill-defined or it's it's all over the place and you you sort of kind of challenge the idea of what a threat is so if you can walk us through sort of how you conceptualize the threat and then how you defined it within the study sure so in writing about terrorist threats specifically, the, the definition that I, I use is a threat is a statement foreshadowing violence, the kind of thing that a terrorist or a militant group does to menace governments or menace civilians and thereby affect the beliefs and behavior of a political audience. So it could be a statement foreshadowing violence in the distant future or it could be a statement foreshadowing violence very soon. It could be threatening someone truthfully or threatening someone falsely. It could be threatening violence via any number of different media, face-to-face speech, threatening notes, like the Afghan Taliban is known to leave night letters to threaten people into complying with the Taliban's social agenda. It could be phone calls. The Irish Republican Army and a number of other groups are well-known for the bomb threats that they issue by phone. It could be texts, emails, videos posted online. Boko Haram is a group that I talk about in the book, and they're known to issue threats via texts, emails, and, and online videos of the group's leader. Increasingly, threats can be issued via social media, like the Islamic State, for instance, is known to issue statements that basically take the form of a, a meme. Generally, I'm talk- talking about things that are explicit, hence the title Force of Words, But in some of the social media contexts, the threatening content can be largely visual with a few words added just to clarify exactly who is being threatened and with what sort of violence. So in that sense, where do you place your research within the broader literature? So of political coercion, of terrorists, of how coercion is used by terrorists. And then within that place, do you find it to be a challenge or do you find it to sort of you know, repeat and sort of endorse what's already been said? Mm, That's a good question. So I think that my notion of threats and what they are, what they do for terrorist groups draws really heavily from a a different body of literature from what you would usually read in, in studying terrorism. It's partly based on my, my background where I went to graduate school, who advised me in graduate school, the, kinds of intellectual pools of knowledge that I was drawing from. I draw the, the definition of, of threats and the way I think about terrorism in large part from the international relations literature on coercive diplomacy. Authors like Thomas Schelling, Robert Jervis, uh, James Fearon. It's not coming from the terrorism literature per se. I find that when the, 
when, when terrorism scholars or often practitioners or, or people in kind of lay audiences talking in the media, when they discuss terrorist threats, it's often in a very vague sense. Uh, a threat of terrorism exists. There's a high threat of terrorism because some person or some group has carried out an act of violence. That's a fine definition, but it misses the, the instrumental value of explicit threats in coercing a political audience, right? The, the colloquial notion of what is the threat of terrorism is really talking about the risk of terrorism, but it's not so much talking about the uh, intentional things that terrorist groups do via their speech to increase their influence, increase their leverage over society, increase their chances of getting specific concessions. Creating a risk is not very useful for gaining a specific concession, but issuing a demand with an explicit threat attached to it saying, here's what my group is going to do to you if you don't meet our demand, that's a very useful and very effective way of gaining specific political, political concessions. Thomas Schelling observes that the object of a threat is to give somebody a choice. And, and that's the sense in which, I, in which I use the term. And that's the kind of theoretical framework that I, that I come with. To give an example that maybe makes that a bit more, uh, a bit more concrete, in 1984, the Irish Republican Army set off a bomb in a hotel in the city of Brighton, England, during a Conservative Party conference because they knew Margaret Thatcher was going to be staying in this hotel. And they managed to collapse the center of the hotel and very nearly killed Margaret Thatcher. The attack wasn't a success in that sense, but you can see the logic of, of, of threats and, and coercion and terrorism based on what they did after because they issued this credit claiming statement. I actually interviewed, I interviewed the journalist who received this statement. He got a call from a person who, who gave statements on behalf of the IRA and he called the journalist and said, meet me in this public park. And he handed the journalist uh, a piece of paper uh, on mauve colored paper. This message was, was written and it said, today we were unlucky, but remember we only have to be lucky once. You'll have to be lucky always. Give Ireland peace and there will be no more war. And that's, that's a terrorist threat. It's giving the prime minister notice, um, saying, we've done this once, we're going to keep doing it again and again, but you have a choice. You can, you can sit down and bargain with us, or you can take your chances and we'll see where this goes. I think the second part of your question was about challenges, whether this is a challenge to the existing literature that's, that's out there. I think what I'm trying to do is refocus the terrorism literature a bit on the symbolic psychological dimension that makes terrorism distinctive from other forms of political conflict. Terrorism is different from a military confrontation between troops on a battlefield or naval forces at sea. It has this, this symbolic dimension and it's, it's communicative. There's a lot of really good literature on symbolic communication, signaling, and coercion by states. There's a wealth of theoretical and empirical knowledge just waiting to be imported to terrorism studies. We have to allow the possibility that non-state actors are just as politically minded as states are. They're not carrying out violence just because they're angry or pathological or suicidal or evil. They have many reasons for doing what they do. But their use of violence is potentially just as rational as that of states. And just like states, they're very adept at using threats to get what they want. I think we need to pay more attention to the way they use threats if we want to understand how terrorism works, how terrorists intend to achieve their political goals. I think the terrorism literature gets about halfway there, anticipating the importance of threats, but not really exploring them specifically as a subject that's worthy of, of specific investigation. So. In the 2000s, we had authors like Barbara Walter and Andrew Kidd who were writing these really important enlightening articles talking about terrorism as costly signaling, which is one of those concepts from the international relations literature. The idea is that your talk is basically cheap if you're a non-state actor. Um, you don't have any tanks, you don't have any troops in uniform. You might talk a big game and make demands on the government and, and say, these are the things we want and you need to concede them but you can't really back up your demands with anything because no one knows who you are, or how strong you are. 
So the logic of terrorism is to carry out violence to signal how strong and dangerous you are. And that way your talk isn't cheap anymore. The point of terrorist violence, if we look at it as costly signaling, is to generate credibility for your future threats. You're just trying to buy your way into the political conversation by carrying out some symbolic violence first. The terrorism literature is great at examining all, all possible aspects of the violence, the credibility generating process, the process by which you buy your way into the political conversation. But once you've bought your way in and your talk is no longer cheap, now what, right? Um, at, to some extent, I think the literature doesn't completely stop there, but it, 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 it almost does, right? We don't have a lot of specific investigations of what terrorists do now that their talk isn't cheap, now that they have the ability to issue some, some credible threats. The IRA, right after carrying out its attack on that Brighton Hotel, made a threat immediately, right? In claiming the attack, they issued a threat of another attack because that's when their threat was gonna be most credible um, and most psychologically salient to their audience. Osama bin Laden was famous for issuing audio and videotapes, most of them after September 11th, right? Because he had shown what he could do. And now he had this opportunity to issue statements that would actually be scary and credible. You can think about all the martyrdom videos that come out after a suicide attack, right? And often those have threats of future violence because you've shown your credibility to, to you've shown your ability to carry out suicide attacks and now you can make some demands and be a, a really scary political player. The, I, the international relations literature talks about this kind of thing a lot. I'm hoping to explore threats in the kind of detail that people have been doing in the international relations literature since Thomas Schelling in the 1960s writing about nuclear coercion except with non-state actors. That's really interesting. So I want to maybe dig into your model a bit that you use. And there's sort of two questions that I wanted to attend to when it comes to the, the, the theoretical framework and the model that you present in the beginning. One is, how did your model relate speech and violence? The, the kinetic part or the potential kinetic part of a threat and then the sort of communication part of the threat and then kind of subpoint to that, you know, how does your definition of, of, of terrorism, of these threats sort of, or let me step back a bit. How does your definition of terrorism, you know, affect how we think of threats in terms of connecting violent actors to political audiences? So first, you know, the threat itself and then the connection of a terrorist to that audience, to the specific audience that it wants to target? Sure. Um, I think this is an important topic to, to highlight. The audience is really central to that communicative, psychological quality that terrorism has. I define terrorism pretty broadly as the use of violence and threats to influence the beliefs or behavior of a broader political audience. I'm giving threats equal analytical priority along with violence. I argue that violence and threats are the two halves of terrorists' toolkit, and you can't really understand how they hope to influence their audience by just looking at the violence itself. In most cases, there's a lot of talking that goes on along with the violence, because violence is often unintelligible by itself. You can do something that causes a lot of carnage and is very shocking, but you're not likely to accomplish much politically unless you help people make sense of the violence by saying, here's who I am, here's why I did this, and here's what's coming down the pike, and here's what you need to do, here's what you need to give me so that I stop doing this kind of thing and I don't carry out those, thre those, those threats that I'm making. Basically, violence is terrorist way of telling us that they're dangerous, and uh, threats are them telling us what we should be worried about as a way of influencing our behavior. I'm also interested in threats at the level of the individual attack. So they're not just integral to terrorism at a strategic or political level. They're actually part of terrorist attacks at, at, the, at the event level. They're often threats that precede the, the physical action of the attack. And they're often threats that are mixed in, like as the physical action is playing out, there is, there is talking happening that, that influences the, the physical and political outcomes of the, of the physical actions that terrorists are taking. So 
what I, I, I call this a speech kinetic action model of terrorism. Violence and threats are, are they jointly compose the terrorist attack. So on the one hand, I'm drawing a distinction between violent acts and speech acts, but I'm saying that they're, they're intimately related. And sometimes violence and threats kind of work as substitutes. You can imagine three temporal moments around a terrorist attack. So prior to the attack, during the attack, while the physical action is going on, and then after. Before carrying out an attack, you might issue some threats beforehand. And some of those threats be the kind of coercive threats where you say, here's what I'm going to do, give me what I want so that I don't do it. Or you might choose to attack out of the blue. You have those two options available to you. If you decide you're going to go through with an attack, you might issue some, some statements right before it or even as you're doing it. Um, because you know that the way people react to your threat will influence their movements. You might be able to, so for instance, uh, you want to carry out an attack on a, uh, on a prison facility. You're trying to arrange a prison break. While that prison break is, while you're setting up that prison break, you issue a threat against the Ministry of Justice across town. And so you use threats during the attack as a way of misdirecting police and increasing the probability that your prison break is going to succeed. You might also issue threats during an attack because you have an interest in reducing casualties. Groups like the Irish Republican Army or ETA, groups like the Weather Underground some of the time, even groups like the Islamic State that, that do kill a lot of civilians will sometimes issue warnings of the attack right before it's about to happen. Because under certain circumstances, they're trying to destroy property but not actually kill civilians. In that sense, those, those threats, those warnings, are part of the attack. They determine the physical outcomes and the humanitarian outcomes, and we can't view them as separate, separate from the terrorist attack. After the attack, you have these political outcomes, one of which might be uh, a successful attack and a whole lot of additional political credibility for your organization, which allows you to make more threats in the future. Each attack creates political conditions for future terrorist violence. I mentioned briefly that Threats can sometimes substitute for violence. What I mean is that terrorists can issue hoax threats. You get a bomb threat, you don't know whether it's true or not. Even if it's not true, a bomb threat can be a very, very damaging thing. So before I was hired at my present job, I think it was a year before, UMass Boston got a number of bomb threats during exam week. And my recollection, hearing this secondhand, is that it caused the school to cancel exam week not once but twice. There was no actual violence, but whoever it was issuing those bomb threats caused a lot of disruption to a lot of people. There are also situations where people issue threats without really having the intention to, to follow through on them to cause a lot, of, a lot of social fear. I mean, if you are attending a place of worship, you're, you're attending a black church in the South, or you're attending a synagogue, you get a hoax threat, those places are often attacked for real. A hoax threat is, is, is deeply frightening and damaging to the community. And so I, I would actually regard those hoaxes as attacks in themselves because they have real consequences. So I wanna, in your book, you bring up a, a, an excellent point, which is terrorists are often not speaking to just one audience. They're, when they communicate a threat or engage in an action, there's not just one audience, but multiple audiences. There's their supporters, there's the security forces, the citizens of a democratic government. And you call this the multiple audience conundrum. So if you can walk us through this conundrum, what is, you know, how do groups engage, how do terrorist groups engage this conundrum? How do they try to step away from it? You know, what is the uh, multiple audience conundrum? Sure. So I think what I was trying to accomplish by giving a name to this problem is to highlight the fact that because of so much of terrorism taking place in public, you're not just speaking to one audience at a time. If I carry out an act of terrorist violence, the point is often to get attention from myself and my cause, but I don't control who reads the newspaper or who sees the footage on TV of the aftermath. So I have to be mindful of the fact that maybe I'm trying to intimidate the government, but 
a lot of civilians are going to see this too. And maybe some of those civilians are the people who offer me shelter, who safeguard my, my weapons caches for me, the civilians who I just need to rely on not to rat me out to the police, or civilians who are sending money or other types of support to my group. Civilians, some of them are quite accepting of casualties, but a lot of them are not. They don't necessarily all want scenes of indiscriminate bloodshed. So the, the violent signaling that terrorists do often has a self-defeating quality because it's also repugnant to the civilian supporters of these groups. The question arises, if you're signaling to multiple audiences with violence, can you intimidate your enemies without alienating your, your friends, without sacrificing the political and operational and material support that you need in order to survive as a, as a clandestine non-state violent actor? So the multiple audiences conundrum is something that most, if not all, terrorist groups will face. They have to find some way, depending on what their civilian support needs are, of signaling strength and, and, and resolve and capability to the enemy that they're trying to coerce without also alienating their civilian friends. One way of dealing with this is by issuing threats, specifically threats while you're carrying out the attack, the kinds of threats that, that warn people about what you're what you're in the process of doing or what you're about to do, the kinds of threats that allow you to focus the physical damage on property rather than people. Or you might issue a lot of hoax threats and cause a lot of economic disrupt disruption without actually killing people. Both of these tactical uses of threats were very common by groups like the Irish Republican Army, ETA, to some extent, the Weather Underground and some other kind of revolutionary left groups in the United States in the 70s and 80s, what they would do, just to take the IRA as an example, because I spent a lot of time with the IRA as a case study, they would plant bombs in important, in, in economically important areas like downtown London, the financial district, very large, very destructive truck bombs, thousands of pounds worth of, of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil explosives, very capable of killing many, many people. But after parking the truck, they'd make phone calls to inform police that there's a bomb there because they want the police to come and evacuate the area to clear all of the civilians out so, what, so that when the truck bomb goes off, it destroys property and causes millions of pounds of economic damage to the British economy and the British state, but doesn't actually kill any or many civilians. So in that way, uh, a group like the IRA manages to signal how dangerous they are to the state, while also signaling to their civilian supporters how restrained they are compared to how bad they could be. I call this signal splitting. Um, the same attack, because you've issued threats and, and done physical violence at the same time, the same attack now kills very few civilians while damaging property a whole lot, and you've sent two different signals to two different audiences, right? Your enemy is impressed with your strength, and your allies are still reassured of your restraint. So I want to explore that a bit. You've, you've kind of touched on the idea of a tactical threat or how terrorist groups use threats tactically, but is there a strategic level? And how would you sort of compare the two levels of threat as strategic and then threat as a tactical motion? So as a political scientist, I am essentially addicted to two by two boxes, uh, right? That's, that's where we all go for, uh, for comfort, reassurance, and to feel like we have some kind of grasp on the world and how it works. So in, envisioning here a two-by-two two box or a, a, a box with four quadrants, I would classify threats into, into four basic categories. Two of them are strategic, as you say, and two of them are tactical. The strategic ones tend to be threats that are issued 
regarding violence in the indeterminate prospective future. I'm not going to tell you exactly when I'm going to attack the subway system, but I'm going to attack it, right? That's a, that's a prospective threat, and it has strategic purposes. It can give me negotiating leverage. It can aggrandize me if I then successfully carry out that attack, and the government failed to prevent me doing that. That makes me look pretty strong relative to the government. And those strategic threats, the kind of prospective long-term threats, can also have a role in achieving social control or uh, strategic advantages for the terrorist group. They can be true and they can be false. Uh, so strategic threats or, or prospective threats that are true, I call them pledges. You're basically pledging to carry out violence at some point in the future. If you're doing it and it's deliberately false, I call that a bluff. You can also issue threats that have a more tactical purpose. Those are the threats that relate to violence in the very, very near future or violence that you've already set in motion. So the example of calling someone on the phone and saying, I've put a bomb in the financial district, that's one of these tactical threats. They have a few different, few different purposes. One of them is if you're a group that has a really intense multiple audiences conundrum, you issue uh, truthful, immediate threats, I call them warnings, to get civilians out of the way. You might use those same threats to disrupt the state's economy, because if the, if the police have to evacuate the financial district in the middle of the day, it causes a lot of economic harm. You might also threaten the subway system, because you know that if the, if the government has to evacuate the subway system, it's going to strand hundreds of thousands of commuters and cause a lot of economic harm. You can also use these threats for tactical advantage. So allowing that, so back to the two by two box, you've got your strategic prospective threats. Those can be true or false. That's two types of threats. You have your tactical or immediate threats. Those can be true or false. That's the other two types of threats. Warnings are the true ones and hoaxes are the false ones. Um, you can use warnings not just to evacuate civilians, but also to victimize the security forces. This was really common in Northern Ireland uh, and Spain. I think it's also, also common in places where you have insurgent groups like the Taliban. So I tell you about an, an attack that I'm carrying out. I warn you about a bomb that I've placed, but I don't warn you about the second bomb that's at the scene, right? So when the police come, they evacuate civilians, but the police get caught in the second bomb. Or I might issue a hoax threat and say, um, I've, I've placed a bomb somewhere and there is no bomb, but what there is is a, a pair of snipers who are then going to shoot at the police or the bomb squad when they, when they show up at the scene. So you can see how if you look at threats and violence as being two parts of the attack, like threats and violence being tactical complements to each other within the same attack, using threats can be a way to tailor the damage that your physical violence causes. And it can also be a way of augmenting the, the, the prospect of your attack su succeeding by maybe misdirecting security forces to go into the wrong place, telling them to, to go look in the wrong area, or even telling them to go to the wrong side of town. If you're trying to uh, carry out an attack, you, you misdirect them to the wrong location while your actual attack goes on. I think that if we go back to the, the strategic threats for a minute, those are the kinds of threats that are talked about a lot in the international relations literature, the coercive diplomacy literature. And you can see how terrorist organizations make use of them too, because a lot of them are trying to bargain with the state. Another thing that you see with terrorist organizations that you don't see as much of in international relations is using those strategic or prospective threats to achieve social control. Because a lot of terrorism is not actually directed at the government, it's directed at the civilian population. And that's where terrorism is arguably most effective, because civilians are the people who are least capable of resisting you. So if you look at groups, just looking at groups that I profile in the book, the Shining Path in Peru, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, the Islamic State, these organizations at, at different times imposed very elaborate state-like regimes with a high degree of control over the civilian population 
And they did it more or less how governments do it. They threaten violence against people who disobey the law. So those, those strategic or prospective threats are also a way of controlling civilian behavior. I think the final function that's worth noting, especially in, in a context of insurgencies, is using strategic or prospective threats to disable or, or otherwise interfere with the state's security apparatus. I call this achieving strategic advantage or, or strategic prophylaxis, if it's like a way of distracting uh, the security forces strategically. Depending on what kind of threats you issue, you can force the government to protect different targets or force the government to predict to protect many targets all at the same time. So if I'm issuing threats against air travel, I might be able to force the government to sink a lot more money and a lot more inconvenience into the, the air transit system. Another thing that you can do is threaten civilians who provide information to the security forces. You see this with groups like the Taliban or Boko Haram. So the Taliban leaves night letters on people's homes, uh, on, their, on their doorsteps, and, and they say, we need you to cease your collaboration with police. Maybe you're a civil servant, they're telling you to quit your job, or maybe you're a police cadet, and they're saying, you need to quit or we're going to behead you. Boko Haram has issued threats against women who provide information to security forces. The Taliban has issued threats against mobile phone companies to shut their services down at night or risk being attacked because night is when the Taliban wants to be most active, right? And they don't want people, tipsters, calling the government's terrorism hotline with their cell phones. In that sense, threats can be a way of blinding your opponent, denying them access to civilians and access to the information that civilians provide. Both of those things are really important in winning an insurgency. And in terrorism and insurgency, threats are a way of of denying the state access to civilians and information. That's interesting. So I want to switch footing a bit to from theory to your to the quantitative part of your research because that was very fascinating to me and I think if I remember correctly you went through 10,000 examples of threats done by the five or so six five or six actors that you're looking at. And so Kind of my first question, it, it might come off as silly, but when evaluating these threats as a research proposition, how can you tell which threats were real and which ones were fake? So like in the example of the IRA, as a researcher, how would you be able to tell that this was the, IR, the actual IRA, not a bunch of idiots in a pub drinking and prank calling? Like, so the the veracity of a threat and the you know the veracity in the sense of the source of it so this is a this is a major hurdle to doing quantitative event level analysis on terrorist threats first of all you have to figure out what your case universe is i did my quantitative analysis just looking at warnings so warnings by my definition, precede actual attacks. So the case universe is attacks. And fortunately, there are event level terrorism data sets like the Global Terrorism Database. So what I did was I took, I, I set a threshold and said, I wanna look at terrorist groups in the Global Terrorism Database who carried out at least 25 bombings. So fairly productive revolutionary organizations, the ones that would be historically significant by the count of their attacks. And I'm going to look at all of the bombings that they carried out and see if there were warnings. And so if the group is giving a threat prior to an actual attack, then we know we've got a, a warning, right? And now I have a research design that tells me something about why groups give warnings, which groups give warnings, and in what context. It would have been much harder. So I, I, I didn't do any quantitative research other than, you know, I, I compiled instances of hoaxes, but I didn't try to do a big large N analysis of hoaxes because it's really hard to figure out what your case universe is. You might be able to find false threats, but it's not always clear who issued them. Sometimes you'll find false threats, but 
it kind of looks like maybe it was intended as a truthful threat and the attack fizzled, right? They, they issued a threat that they intended to carry out, but the car bomber got stopped at a police checkpoint. And so the, the bombing didn't get carried out. It's hard to tell what's a hoax and what's a warning for an attack that, that went wrong. For my purposes, focusing on warnings was, was what I chose to do. I had 131 terrorist groups from the Global Terrorism Database and 12,235 attacks where I was able to send my research assistants into LexisNexis and gave them a very detailed search protocol saying, here's the words I want you to put in. Here's a bunch of synonyms for the group's name. Here's all the acronyms for the group. I know an attack happened on this day. So search in the two days prior to see if anyone gave warnings of this attack that was coming. It's hard to give a truthful warning of an attack without actually being the group who carries it out. You know, that's an amazing, an amazing amount of foresight for someone to just, you know, know that a terrorist attack is going to happen. So I did assume that whoever was giving the warning was the group itself because they had to have foreknowledge of the attack. And with this new data set, drawn from the global terrorism database, but with my warnings data wrapped in, I could look at what are the, what are the factors, the political factors? Is it the religious orientation of the group, whether it's an ethnic separatist group? Is it whether the group has territory, whether the group has democracy? What or whether, whether the group fights a democracy, what are the var variables that predict warnings? Partly because warnings are the kinds of threat that you can respond to most usefully, right? If you get a threat and it's a warning, you wanna get people out of the way. If you're the school and you get a bomb threat, you probably wanna evacuate the school, assuming you think it's credible. So there are some some basic terrorism resilience lessons to be learned from finding out what are the factors that make a, a group give warnings. Um, and by implication, what are the factors that might make a, a warning that you receive more credible? Another thing you get from a kind of detailed analysis of threats and specifically looking at warnings is you find out something about the political incentives of the group. Part of this research is in the book and part of it is in an article i published an international organization right about when the book came out, using warnings as a kind of indicator of casualty aversion by the terrorist group. If you separate out attacks on civilian targets from attacks on police, because warnings before attacks on police suggest to me that they're trying to lure police into a trap, like the warning is used as a, as a come on to draw police into an ambush of some kind. I wanna separate those out just for the moment and look at warnings for attacks on civilian targets, those are basically all uh, good faith efforts, if you can call them that, to get civilians out of the way. So if you find out what factors incentivize warnings, you've found out what factors correspond with casualty aversion by the terrorist group in general, and what factors are increasing the terrorist group's multiple audiences conundrum. Interestingly, I found that factors like religion, ethnic grievances, leftist ideology, reactionary ideology, separatist political goals, all those things that people think relate to the decision to target civilians or spare them, at least in my analysis of bomb threats, warnings, do not predict warnings. They don't seem to have any significant effect. What does matter a lot is whether the terrorist group in question is fighting a democracy and whether the group has a territorial stronghold that it can go and hide in. And those two factors, democracy and territory, correspond pretty closely with the factors that qualitatively, in doing a lot of interviews of IRA members, ETA members, people in Sri Lanka, people in Peru, the factors correspond to the things that make them worry about civilian support. If you're fighting a democracy, you need to be very careful not to kill too many civilians because civilians in a democracy have come to accept a higher level of humanitarian behavior from the state. You're not gonna win any legitimacy competitions with a democratic state by killing civilians wantonly, which is why when you see groups like the Weather Underground or ETA or the IRA 
emerge from a democracy, they tend to be very good about giving warnings and averting casualties. The territory aspect is interesting because it has a territorial stronghold. It doesn't have to worry too much about civilians in the areas where they're carrying out bombings. They're not bombing their strongholds. They're bombing the state-controlled areas. And if you have a stronghold off-site where you can flee to afterwards, you don't have to worry as much about alienating civilians in the state's control. When you see terrorist groups like the Weather Underground or ETA or uh, name your European left-wing revolutionary group from the 70s or 80s, and you see them giving warnings, it's not because they're polite or because Westerners are less wantonly destructive or because leftist organizations or, I mean, there's a whole bunch of sort of folk theorems for what makes groups like that less bloody-minded. I argue that just using warnings as an indicator of, of their casualty aversion, they're, they're casualty averse because they, they don't have a stronghold to flee to and they're fighting a democracy. When you see a group like the Islamic State or Boko Haram or the Taliban being really brutal, it's not because of their religion, as far as I can tell. It seems to be because they're not fighting democracies and they have strongholds. And so the threshold for legitimacy is basically on the floor. They don't have to really care too much about that multiple audiences conundrum and how many civilians they, they kill or don't kill. So in this sense, how does social media complicate things or did it complicate anything? Because it seems like just off the top of my head, the IRA, you know, at, at its height would use the phone, newspaper, the communications technology of the day. And ISIS uses social media. And it, it almost, it seems like the difference is that social media can transcend, right? It's, you know, everybody can see Twitter, whereas newspapers, telephone, it's, you know, more localized. So, in that sense, did you see any difference with the use of social media, with the use of Twitter and Facebook versus telephone and newspaper issued threats? Or there was no real substantive difference, you know, depending on which medium was used? There is a difference in terms of the, the, so, all the organizations that I looked at, I, I, I did field work in, in a few different places. I was in Ireland and Spain. I was in Sri Lanka. I was in Peru. And then I did a lot of secondary source research on jihadist groups, Islamic State, Boko Haram, and the Afghan Taliban. You can see groups evolve, looking specifically at the Taliban, because they've been fighting for so long as an insurgent group and carrying out acts of terrorism you see them evolve from using low-tech means like night letters, pieces of paper with threats written on them, to circulating viral videos. So to some extent, these, these videos of them committing acts of violence get shared on people's phones and they just kind of go viral. You don't have to give, you don't have to issue night letters necessarily anymore to intimidate civilians and tell them, this is what we're going to do to people who provide information to the police. Here's a video of us executing someone. Boko Haram is an interesting case because many of their threats are in the form of these very long videos by leaders and spokespeople of the group who, who rattle off, um, here's all the different types of targets we're going to attack. There's also a a, a really pernicious problem in Nigeria with threats that come in via text or email, and it's difficult to identify their source. So from, from my perspective, I didn't find it complicating my research, but you can see it complicating the lives of people in the country who have this unfortunate coincidence of a very active, very violent insurgent group and a highly connected society where everyone's got uh, access to a phone, social media, and email. There's a lot of room for malfeasance by people who aren't even part of Boko Haram. And it's, it's the same with, with the Islamic State. That's as much a, a brand as it is an organization. 
If you look at the, the way that it's, it's mentioned in social media, often threats arrive and they reference the Islamic State in some way and you don't know who has created this threat that's, that's circulating. There's an example I look at in the book where the school system in the city of Los Angeles in 2015, so after the San Bernardino shootings by two Islamic State affiliates, operating more or less independently from the Islamic State organization itself. Uh, these people have just carried out this attack in San Bernardino, and the school system in Los Angeles receives a threat purporting to be from the Islamic State, and the officials in the school system shut the entire school system down, and all of these children are being sent home from all of these schools in Los Angeles, and no attack materializes. And it's because this was not the Islamic State issuing a threat, but it certainly caused a lot of trouble. I spend a, a certain amount of time kind of toward the end of the book in terms of the practical implications for understanding threats, looking at what are the criteria, what are the dimensions of credibility of a terrorist threat? If you receive a threat, what are the things to consider when deciding whether you want to act on this and, 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 and shut your business down or shut your school down, shut the transit system down? or hold back a little bit and, and investigate before, before taking action on it. I can talk about that a little bit now, if you like. Yeah, that's kind of, that kind of fascinates me because there are a lot of policy like implications of your work. So one of them, I, th I think you've already mentioned is like, when do we take a threat seriously? When should, you know, policymakers, police, law enforcement, whoever, when should they take a threat seriously and when should they dismiss or not dismiss, but ignore or dismiss a threat? So after spending a number of years looking at threats, talking to people, like going out and interviewing militants who had well, they'd both killed people and they had threatened to kill people and issued a variety of threats, been, been active at, at various stages of their lives in different roles within a terrorist organization. I came to see three particular criteria as the things to look for or the things to look at in assessing whether a, a threat is likely to be true. One, the capabilities of the group that's supposedly threatening you. Does this organization have the ability to carry out the threatened attack in the threatened location? In the case of that Islamic State threat or purported Islamic State threat against Los Angeles schools, the threat referenced uh, a nerve gas attack by dozens of jihadists. That right there should have told the school district this is not a credible threat, right? This group has never shown the ability to get to the United States in large numbers, let alone with nerve gas. So if the attack or if the threat is promising an attack that seems completely outlandish outside of whatever demonstrated capability the group has, that is not a very credible threat. You don't want to act on that right away. You might want to investigate it because occasionally terrorist groups do surprise you with something new, but generally the newer or more outlandish the threat, the less likely it is to be true. The second dimension of credibility is what are the incentives that the, the organization, the terrorist organization has to tell you the truth? There are groups that have this really intense multiple audiences conundrum who are really constrained in the number of civilians they can get away with killing before their supporters reject them and and in some cases, literally kick them out onto the street, right? A group like the IRA or ETA, often they're sheltering in people's homes. Groups that have really intense multiple audiences conundrums, really intense legitimacy concerns, either A, because they're fighting a democracy, uh, or B, because they don't have a territorial stronghold. Those are groups that do issue truthful warnings from time to time. So if you're in a country where a group like that is active, you do have to be on the lookout for some warnings that are likely going to be true. However, it also depends on the target, because even a group that's, that's very good about warning civilians out of the way 
when they're attacking civilian targets is not going to give a lot of truthful warnings before they attack the police or the army, right? So you also have to consider what is being threatened here. If the group has incentives for casualty reduction and the threat is directed at civilian targets, then that actually does seem like a pretty credible threat you want to pay attention to. The third dimension of credibility, and this is where the, the social media, like the transition from paper threats, verbal threats in person, threats by phone, transition away from that toward a more social media oriented communication sphere. That's where this comes into play. What is the probability that the person issuing the threat is who they say they are? What is the probability that they actually are a member of the terrorist group they say they represent, as opposed to some kid trying to get the day off from school? So back when UMass Boston got its bomb threats before I was hired, probably that was a student who didn't want to take exams and wanted extra time to study. Kids want to get the day off from school. They don't want to take their exams. Sometimes disgruntled employees don't want to go to work. Teenagers are just terrible, right? We're all terrible at that stage of our lives at one point. There's a lot of threats that just come from 14-year-olds. In a world where there's a lot of social media, the opportunity for random pranks is a lot greater. So I think in the future, unless you've got a very active insurgency in your country or a clandestine terrorist group that is very productive at, 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 at generating attacks, the ratio of credible threats of actual danger to just gibberish junk threats that get circulated virally, that ratio is going to favor the viral junk threats pretty heavily. And I think the ratio favors junk threats even more heavily uh, as we get more connected and more dependent on, on social media. Having said that, one of the most interesting things that I found in doing the research for this book was the lengths that groups will go to. Like when you are actually a terrorist group and you have concerns about killing the wrong people and you want your coercive threats to be believable, right? You want the government to to believe your threats and give you what you want because you've shown you're credible. You care about your reputation for truthfulness and you find ways to ensure that your, your, your state opponent knows it's you. So Boko Haram does this when they want to issue coercive threats to the government or to the civilian population. They've got their, their leader, Abu Bakr Shakao, who just does these hour-long video rants. It's very obvious that it's him. It's very, it would be very hard to impersonate him. The Irish Republican Army developed a really elaborate system of code words to put into its phone calls uh, so that police would know when it was the IRA, more or less. ETA would use electronic devices to alter the sound of their voices so that their phone calls both for giving warnings for claiming attacks and also issuing threats of future attacks, like in a bargaining setting, they used these, these devices to alter the sound of their voices. And that sound was like a calling card for them, showing that it was really them. So groups that really want to be believed in a bargaining setting and groups that really want to get civilians out of the way of, of attacks will find ways to let you know that it's them because they actually don't like the pranks very much either. It gets in the way of them being able to communicate both with civilians and with the state. Another, another anecdote, I mean, just talking about credibility in social media, not all of the responses to terrorism are state responses. A lot of it is grassroots. Nigeria has had a really serious problem with Boko Haram for years, and it has really, it's been uh, very problematic for anybody involved in education. So this is near and dear to my heart. There have been instances of a single threat being issued uh, against dozens of universities at the same time in a particular week. And just a really disruptive set of like kind of cascading shutdowns of universities based on threats that later proved to be a, not true, and B, not really credible on their face based on how they were issued. Like, they were issued in the wrong language, like languages that Boko Haram doesn't use. Ever since that group started kidnapping schoolgirls, schools get threats, probably from students who don't want to be there, on a particular day of school, and they have to sort out, 
is this Boko Haram coming to threaten, like, are they, are they, is this actually Boko Haram threatening us for real and saying we're coming to kidnap more children, or is this the local student prankster? I think over time, schools operating on their own initiative developed a little more skepticism around some of these social media or email or text message threats and adopted a posture of what I'd call uh, heavily securitized skepticism. And I think that there's some lessons learned there for the future because we're heading into a world where the capacity to generate junk threats as a prankster is so great that I think we all have to learn to take a, a step back at least at first to like, well, to look at the content of threats and try not to overreact to them too much. That's interesting. So we've kind of, we've come to the end of the show and per tradition, usually we want our guests to leave us with something to think about, you know, whether what is to consider, you know, what is the future of the field or, you know, how as non-professionals, non-academics, we can think about threats, but ultimately something for the audience to chew on, to think about, and sort of a parting words of sorts from this show. So if you can. So I think I would close with two things. One of them is one of them is an observation about the way threats are going to look in the future, and one is kind of a call for future research. So as I was doing this project, I saw all the different ways that, that threats are being used to produce particular outcomes, whether it's coercing a government, getting the civilian population to adhere, adhere to a particular set of rules, aggrandizing yourself by showing that you can carry out the attacks that you've threatened, getting civilians out of the way, issuing hoaxes to disrupt everything without actually having to kill anybody. The challenge for researchers, I think, is maybe to reassess this narrative that terrorism is not effective. Because I think people focus on terrorism as a way of coercing governments. But unless you're looking at threats, you might not notice all the ways in which terrorists are actually just trying to coerce civilians. And civilians are much more vulnerable to coercion than governments are. There are instances where groups like the Islamic State managed to create a state-like entity, and it's because they were so prodigious in the use of threats to suppress any kind of opposition to themselves. Groups like, like the IRA were so good at social control, despite lacking territory, that they could essentially deter drug dealing on their turf by threatening to kneecap people who dealt drugs. And the people who got caught dealing drugs would basically show up to get kneecapped by appointment because they'd be told, we'll kill you unless you show up behind this building at 7 p.m. Shining Path managed to reorganize entire villages because of how, how they used threats to create this kind of social compliance. I think it's, it's hard to think about how you would research this. It's, it's much easier to focus on, well, did the terrorist group get what it wanted from the government? I think it's, it's also important to look at all the ways that terrorists have used threats to produce civilian compliance. It's harder to wrap your head around methodologically, but arguably that's where terrorism is most effective. And I think it's really misunderstood and not not appreciated fully by those of us who haven't lived under a regime of terror, how, how effective terrorism specifically via threats can be. A second observation in terms of how threats are changing, I think the line between threats and incitement is blurring. Part of this is based on personal experiences of having received some death threats as I was writing this book not because of anything I was doing. It wasn't like I was researching someone and then they started threatening me. I know that happens to terrorism researchers and it's a frightening thing when that happens. This was, it's actually unrelated to the book except the topic was, was, was on my mind. Social media in particular blurs the line between threats and incitement in a potentially very dangerous way. 
I just said that I think there's going to be a future full of junk threats from pranksters, which is true, I believe, but also it only takes one person who sees a meme to act on their own initiative and carry out violence. And I think that it's increasingly difficult to tell what's a threat and what's a call for people who see viral content to act on the message and attack the person who's mentioned in the meme. So a thing to watch for in the future is, can you always tell whether it's a threat you're seeing or an invitation to, to some susceptible individual who might see the content and carry out the threat for you, right? The person issuing the threat is not necessarily the person who's gonna carry it out. I think that's new because of the way social media makes things go viral. Um, and what does it do to our notion of terrorist threats if the person making the threat is not the person who carries it out? Well, thank you so much for being on the show. That was Joseph M. Brown, the author of Force of Words, The Logic of Terrorist Threats. We'll have a link to the book. Make sure to get it. It's a fascinating read. I definitely learned a lot. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Sina. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And yeah, it was very enjoyable. And thanks for having me. Of course.